Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of sending out the Newberger family. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of just assembling together in your name. We ask that we would worship you through the music this morning, through the preaching, and through the invitation. Lord, that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the next song. Today is Palm Sunday. And uh, no, we're not giving out palm branches today. Um, we had uh, done that in, in time past. There's nothing wrong with giving out palm branches on Palm Sunday. Uh, with the exception of they make a great big mess all over the church and the kids are beating each other with them on the way out. And, and so last year we bought some palms and we kept them all year long. And they're still alive, amen. That's thanks to Brother Ding and all his faithful work keeping our palms uh, moving. We bought some, they died. We got some others, uh, they're still going. Uh, you know, every day ought to be Palm Sunday in a real church, amen. And we look today and you say, now how are you going to connect Palm Sunday to sending out the new burgers? Well, just fasten your seatbelts. We'll get there eventually, Amen. Uh, everything in the Bible is connected. It's not a hard thing to, to make the connections of Jesus being our king and sending out a family to serve the king. Amen? And so uh, maybe stick your finger in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be getting there eventually. In our last three Sunday mornings, we've been talking about the different aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we centered on Jesus Christ as the high priest and fulfilling all of the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies in the tabernacle later in the temple. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus as the prophet. There were many things that he foretold and that he brought and and, of course, there was no way that you could have any greater revelation of God's love than to look at the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? There was no way we could see a greater revelation of God's judgment than to look at the cross or God's power than to look at the empty tomb. I've often heard, and Brother Newberger has probably heard this statement made by people who pretend to understand the Bible. If only the Jews had accepted Jesus as their king, all history would have ended and the cross would not have been necessary. You ever heard anybody say that, teaching dispensationalism? I just want to make a statement. The ignorance of biblical truth necessary to make that statement is beyond reality. Uh, the Bible prophesied of the cross from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. And of course, we understand Revelation 22 is looking back. But this entire Bible is about the cross. Jesus would suffer on the cross no matter what. Now, what people try to do is they try to blame, somehow blame the Jewish people for the cross. That is just um, 
I, I don't know how else to say that the ignorance to make that statement has got to be on purpose. It cannot be by accident. Nobody can be that stupid without doing it on purpose. Uh, this is what our Bible teaches. In Genesis 3.15, as Adam and Eve were standing on the edge of the Garden of Eden, they had just seen God kill the first animals in sacrifice and make clothing to cover their nakedness and their shame because of sin. God looked at Eve and said, I'm going to put enmity between thy seed and his seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Thou shalt bruise his head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's what happened on the cross. Do you realize the cross is one of the only means of capital punishment that the heel is bruised? Because the nails were driven through the soft part where the ankle meets the foot and out below the heel so that no bone was broken. And yet, how many of you know what a bone spur is? Is anybody, any fellow uh, adherents here? Uh, those things are relatively painful. Uh, I mean, they just don't go away. But imagine having to rest the entire weight of your body on a nail driven through your foot coming out below the heel. You see, part of the work of the crucifixion was the shock and the loss of blood, but as they stretched your arms out like this, your body would literally go down. If you're going to breathe, you had to stand up. If you were going to stand up, you were going to stand up on the nail that was supporting your weight. The pain was part of the suffering. It was prophesied, Genesis 3.15. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah chapter 53. Great descriptions. In fact, there are people who have read the description of the cross in Matthew chapter Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then read Psalm 22 and tried to suppose that Psalm 22 had been written after the gospel accounts. The only problem was David lived a thousand years before Jesus was born, and there's absolutely no question that David wrote Psalm 22. It's a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled on the cross. Daniel chapter 9, as God answers Daniel's prayer and gives him understanding to the times of the people of the children of God, the people of Israel, he says that there's going to be 60 and 9 prophetic weeks, uh, total weeks from the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince. Sir Robert Anderson, who was a real detective, while Mr. Doyle was writing his wonderful uh, tales of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Robert Anderson was actually working at Scotland Yard as a detective. When he retired, he put his sleuthing abilities to the Word of God 
And he did the mathematics to find out that from the very day the command was given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the day that Jesus rode the donkey through the eastern gate was exactly the same number of days as prophesied in the book of Daniel. Coincidence? Uh, you'd have to join the ignorant people that believe what we talked about at the very beginning. You see, this book called the Bible gives us the story of God's redemptive plan. And I want us to look at some scripture this morning, and then we're going to end up in 1 Corinthians 15. But turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, in the last couple of verses there. Now, this was Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem after his baptism after he had begun his earthly ministry. And the first thing Jesus did when he got to Jerusalem is he entered into the temple compound. Now, you have to understand that the temple was a small, smaller building in the center of a much larger court system and walls and different barriers. And, and we've talked about the book of Acts, how that in one porch of the temple, and there were several, that... 5,000 men got saved out of the number of people that were assembled there. There was room for tens of thousands of people in each one of the porches of the temple. And Jesus went into a place that was known as the court of the Gentiles. This was as far as anyone could go who was not born of Jewish heritage. If you were, as most of us are in this room this morning, born of Gentile, non-Jewish tradition, uh, even if we became religious Jews, we could still only enter into that court delineated for the court of the Gentiles. Beyond the court of the Gentiles was the court of the women of Israel, and beyond the court of the women was the temple proper where the Jewish men could go in. In fact, that's what happened with the Apostle Paul, is he was in that inner court, the courts of the, of the men of Israel, and he was accused of having brought a Gentile in there. That was Sunday school lesson two weeks last week, and it set the entire city of Jerusalem in an uproar because they thought the temple had been defiled. Jesus went into that court, the court of the Gentiles, and it was full of men selling sacrifices. And he ran them out. He made them flee. He drove the animals out. If you could imagine, if you and I were in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, we would be there trying to pray and worship God in the midst of mooing uh, or bellowing oxen. Oxen don't moo. They, they make loud and sundry noises. The, the bleeding of sheep and goats, the fluttering of wings of the doves. And of course, uh, do we have to spend time describing all the accoutrements that come along with live animals being stored in a confined place? That's where you and I would have to worship God. And Jesus drove them out of there not because they were selling sacrifices. 
but because they were thieves. They waved the money in light, weighed you out heavy, stole from you as you were coming, stole from you as you were leaving, and then the sacrificial animals, of course, were five and ten and twenty times the price. Was this a responsibility of all the people? No. Most Jewish people were victims of the thievery just as everyone else was. It was just a few. When you see capital J-E-W Jews in your Bible, it's talking about the religious and political leaders a very small group of people who were responsible for these things. And as the people saw what Jesus was doing, the the Jews, these political leaders whose income Jesus had greatly hampered at this point, got around him and said, what right do you have to do this? And he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they said, We've been 46 years rebuilding this, building this temple and you're going to build it in three days? Well, Jesus was talking to them of his body. The temple was known as Herod's temple. It had literally been built up over and completely engulfed Zerubbabel's temple. This was the same one that was built when the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. We come down here to the end. We're just trying to set the context here. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The idea here is that there were people who were willing to accept Jesus as their king. And Jesus refused to commit himself to that acceptation, that adoration, because he knew what was in the heart of man. You see, they wanted Jesus to exalt their temple. When we, if we go, to, we go to Matthew chapter 24, at the end of Jesus' ministry, just days before he would uh, be crucified, the disciples are there showing him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, there's not one stone that's going to be left upon another. And the disciples answer was when are these things going to be and when is the end of the world because in their mind the destruction of the temple had to be the end of the world Jesus did not come to be the reigning king in the temple built by hands and so he refused to become their king it wasn't the Jews that refused Jesus it was Jesus that refused them And we'll get to the understanding of that in just a minute. But let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. One of the wonderful stories in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 15 tells us, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force 
to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. There were 5,000 men, women, and children. There were a multitude of people here. And when Jesus had performed that miracle, they said, this is the Messiah. This is our king. And Jesus understood the thoughts of their heart that they would come and take him by force and try to make him a king. Now, does that agree with uh, the books you've read on dispensationalism? No, it doesn't. And so we reject what's been written because we believe what the Bible says. But here's the problem. They wanted a king that was going to take care of all their needs and give them everything they want. That's not why Jesus came to be king. Let's look at one more. John chapter 11. Verse 47 says, Then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we for this man doeth many miracles? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. You see, they wanted the king that was going to exalt them and exalt their people. Now, just in case you're wondering, these ideas are very much alive and well today. We have churches that make all kinds of absolutely unbelievable claims. The, I was working in a nursing home, and one of the ladies I was working at, well, I was a student in Bible college, and and, of course, I, I tried to take advantage of opportunities when the discussion would turn to religious things to talk about the Bible. And, and a lady said, well, Jesus started the churches of Christ. I said, really? I said, how do you know that? She says, well, right there, I, I think it's in the book of Galatians. It says, the churches of Christ saluteth you. That's talking about our churches. And I started laughing, and she looked at me and said... But it says that. I said, yes, but there were no such organization or church known as Church of Christ, as Christ before a man named Alexander Campbell, who was a defrocked Presbyterian preacher, tried to join the Baptist and found out that he didn't agree with them, so he started his own church in the 1820s. I said, there's a little difference between 64 AD and the 1820s. I said, there's just a little space there. I said, that can't possibly be talking about your organization. And by the way, the churches of Christ believe that without water, you can't be saved. Now, let me tell you something. You can only be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Plus, minus, nothing. Amen? Somebody showed me a flyer from a Catholic church. It says, Jesus started our church, and we have apostolic succession to prove it. And uh, we went through the Bible and opened that thing up and Jesus didn't start the Catholic Church. Actually, a guy named Constantine, Emperor of Rome, started the Catholic Church 200 and 
50-some years after the time of Jesus. But how many different religious organizations say, come to our church because we're the chosen ones of God? Does that sound like the same attitude as was exuded there in John chapter 2? It does to me. I hope you can see the connection. And, I mean, we walk around, the, the religion of Islam is in the news today and all of this. And, uh, you, uh, I mean, I've tried to talk to some of those guys, especially the ones on the street, but you just can't deal with liars. You tell them, this is what the Quran says. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. And you're sitting there going, now, well, now, wait a minute. What do you do about all these hundreds of guys that get up on the thing and say, that, uh, uh, that the Quran does say this and you say it doesn't, who am I supposed to believe? And yet I had one of them tell me, see, the difference between the Bible and the Quran is there's only one translation of the Bible, I mean of the Quran. We have the original. Um, I have a book this thick written by a Muslim cleric talking about all the different interpretations in the Quran. Let me tell you something. They claim to only have one translation, but they argue about it far more diverse than anything we argue about talking about the Bible. We don't have Christians that hold up their Bible saying we ought to go out and kill people. But what do they say? The Quran says that God, when, when God comes, he's going to exalt the Muslims and therefore no one can... Uh, be exalted above a Muslim. Therefore, in, in a Muslim Sharia law, no one can ride a horse because if a Muslim man was standing on the street, you'd be higher than he is. And if you want proof for that, just study the history of the Ammonite Jews. They are a people that have literally been dwarfed by having to walk around like this trying to follow Sharia law so that they would not be executed by the mass population that surrounded them. But you see, people still want a Jesus to exalt them. And in John chapter 6, where it talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000, you hear me repeat and, and talk about Mr. Warren's book, repeatedly, but I guess he's probably the epitome. Uh, of course, you can turn on TVN and find the guys that, Jesus will give you a brand new car and a fur coat and money in the bank. And Let me tell you, these attitudes are still here. And they're just as evil today as they were when Jesus heard them. And Jesus refuses to be that kind of king. I've, had, I've heard people say over the years that, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to make us all agree. And you know what? That's, that's right. But he's going to make us all agree to what's already been written down, my friend. He's not going to compromise on his doctrine. He's not going to change things and say, well, I know you believe this way and you believe this way and we'll find some common ground in the middle. He's going to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, believe in me, period. I think we're getting a little ring there somewhere. You see, 
They wanted to come by force and make Jesus their king so he would do what they wanted him to do. That's what Rick Warren's book tells you, that God will give you what's in your heart if you'll just believe in him enough to get what you want. That's Buddhism, not from the Bible. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, a real king, if there's going to be such a thing as a king, and believe it or not, I, I was trying, as I was talking about this thing of kings, we in America, we just do not comprehend anything as to what it means to have a royalty and a king uh, because we, our country was founded against that stuff that some man should have the right to rule over all of us because he was anointed by God. That's called the divine right of kings. Uh, we, don't, we don't believe in that. We believe that all men are created equal. And someone said, well, they wrote that book, well, wrote that phrase while some of those men held slaves. yes. But can you tell me another, another country in the history of mankind that fought a war as bloody as our civil war to solve the problem? Hmm? I'm tired of all these people out there yapping. and We, we believe all men are created equal. But let me tell you something. Jesus is not only man. He is God. And if you want to talk about the divine right of kings, well, let's talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been good kings in history. I think for every good king, there's probably been a hundred bad ones, but there have been some good kings in history. But let me tell you something. A good king fights the real battles whether his people are behind him or not. You see, Jesus came to fight some battles. He came to gain victory over certain things that was so far removed from the minds of the people who waved the palm branches and said, Hosanna to the son of David, as he rode the donkey through the gate of Jerusalem. How many of you have read the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It tells us that he came down off the Mount of Olives, and I've never been there, but I heard there's a turn in the road where the entire city of Jerusalem is laid out before you. It tells us that as Jesus beheld the city, he wept. They were all going, Hosanna to the son of David. They were saying glory to God in the highest. They were praising him as the king. And if Palm Sunday was not the 
acceptation and the adoration of the Jewish people of Jesus as their king, I don't know what impossibly in history, how else you could describe that event. And people want to display it because just a few days later, the chief priests, the religious and, and political leaders had persuaded the people to say crucify him. Let me tell you, Jesus was going to be crucified no matter who condemned him because he was going to fulfill the Old Testament law. Why did he go to the cross? Because he was going to fight some battles. The first battle he was going to fight was the battle against death. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. How many of you have sinned in this room? Would you just raise your hand today? And by the way, if your hand didn't go up, you just committed another one. You told a lie. Isn't that true? Because all have sinned. And because of our sin, the penalty is death. God is not going to allow one sin into heaven. It all started out with just one sin on here on earth. Look at the mess we're in today. Look at the things that we are arguing about in our political and social life. Who ever imagined 50 years ago that we would be publicly talking and debating on some of the issues that are just commonplace. Who ever thought that abortion would actually become a political debate? Fifty years ago, everybody knew what abortion is. It is ending the life of a child. And if you want any other definition, I'm going to put you in the classification of the profoundly ignorant that we talked about in the beginning. Because you can't be that dumb by mistake. You've got to purposely choose to believe that stuff. Somebody's got to help you. I guess that's what college is about now. Helping people to be stupid. Is anybody going to disagree with that statement? I don't think so. That's why we support colleges like Heartland to teach the Bible. Amen. And by the way, you can't study to become a medical doctor, uh, an architect, a police officer. You cannot go to secular college and study how to be a basket weaver or a nose picker without having to take philosophy classes that teach all this foolishness. But Jesus came to fight the battle against death. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's why Jesus died on the cross. They accuse us of being hellfire and damnation preachers. 
Now, I don't know that I preach on that every Sunday, but I don't know that it goes by very often that we don't mention God's judgment in a message and that there is a real place called hell and real people are there now and real people that are in this room are going to end up there someday unless they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Let me tell you, hell was the place of every man, woman, and child until Jesus died on the cross and won the battle. Amen? How many of you hate the devil? Well, that's good. The devil gets blamed for a lot of stuff that we ought to take credit for, though. But you turn on TBN, you get those guys, and I'm, I'm sorry for picking on them, but I just get so sick of them waving their Bibles and saying, I command every demon in this place to leave. Liar. You think the devil's going to listen? He's sitting there back, give me more, give me more. We don't talk a lot about the devil around here. Somebody said, give the devil his due. No, too many people are already doing that. Let me tell you, the devil is our defeated foe. Because Jesus fought the battle and won the victory on the cross. Don't you try to fight the devil. He will destroy you. Hide behind the Savior who already won the battle. That's how you get involved in spiritual warfare, my friend. Hide behind the Savior because he fought the battle. A real king fights the real enemy. How many puppet governments have been set up to fight an enemy that doesn't exist so that the real enemy can come in and subjugate the people? I've just described to you how communism has worked in many different countries of the world. They have united to fight one enemy and get you to trust them and then they sneak in. That's the story of Romania, the story of Yugoslavia, the story of the entire Eastern Bloc of Europe after World War II. And it's still going on today, but let me tell you something. Jesus as a real king came to fight the real battles and destroy the real enemies. But a real king also is here to provide us with some things. Amen? I don't know as long as I have a mind that I'll ever forget the conversation that I had. It was the year 2000. A fellow called up on the phone and said, I would like to have a, a session with you. I'd like to talk with you, Pastor. I had no idea who he was, and I agreed to have him come into my office. He was from the country of Iran. Spoke English better than most of us in this room. Very educated man. He wanted to convert me to Islam. I thought that was rather humorous. I figured I'd give a shot at converting him to Christianity. He thought that was rather humorous. But here's how our conversation ended. 
Because I, I was praying. I said, Lord, how can I present something to this man to make him stop and think? I said, I think I can tell you the difference between your religion and my religion in one word. I saw his eyes get big. He said, hey, hmm, this could be good. I said, the word's forgiveness. Now, he's in my office. He stands up and pounds on my desk and says, there is no forgiveness. You do unto others as they do unto you. I said, that's the difference between your God and my God. My God died on the cross. He took the punishment of all of my sins so I can go free. He's not going to exact of me his judgment because he paid for it himself. You see, the real king has come to give us forgiveness. That was the end of our conversation, by the way. He's also come to give us reconciliation. To restore what man lost in the Garden of Eden. To bring us back into close communication with God. You ever wonder why God always appeared to Abraham and spoke to him? Well, part of it was because Abraham didn't have a copy of that book over there. But the biggest part is because of sin. Your iniquities have separated between you and God. That's out of Isaiah. That's why Jesus told the disciples, it's good for me to go away because if I come, if I go away, I'm going to send the comforter. Who's the comforter? It's the Holy Spirit of God to live within us. Do you realize when we pray, we speak directly to God? No intermediaries. I've always wondered how that thing with saints works. I, I asked somebody one time, and all he did was get mad at me. I said, now, let's just take Mary, for instance, if she's a saint. Oh, yes, the greatest of all the saints. I said, well, how many people pray to Mary in a day? Let's just take 24-hour period. I said, I think the number is there's supposed to be like 800 million Catholics in all the world. And I said, how many of them pray to Mary in a 24-hour period? Oh, I wouldn't know. Well, let's just take a wild guess. I mean, let's, let's say that only a million Catholics prayed to Mary in 24-hour period. Oh, that's really low. I said, well, yeah. But could you deal with a million requests in 24 hours as a human being? That would make your existence in heaven a living torture chamber now, wouldn't it? If you had to be responsible to carry all these requests to God, I said you've only got one of two alternatives. One is that Mary is no longer human and has taken on God-like characteristics to be able to handle it. Or she has got to be the most miserable person in heaven trying to take care of all your prayers and take them to God for you. Now you know why they got mad. But let me ask you a question. 
does that negate the truth of what we just discussed? If a saint is going to be able to do this, they would have to become God to do it. Either that or they would be like the rest of us and forget half of what they're, three quarters, nine tenths of what they're supposed to do. You see, Jesus fought the battle for reconciliation so that each one of us can pray directly to God who has no problem sorting out each and every prayer and every request and no limit on his power to answer each and every prayer as he sees fit. Could we say amen to that? Isn't that the kind of king that you would really like to have? How about this last one? He made a provision for me to be part of his family. We live in a world, a society here in America that is saturated in self-esteem. And if you have self-esteem problems, you're in the right place. Because we're going to help you here today. The heart that it lives within you is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You say, Pastor, that doesn't help my self-esteem a bit. Well, no, we're going to step on that thing because the Bible has another word for self-esteem. It's called pride. It's the greatest of all sins and it's the thing that will keep more people out of heaven than any other thing in the universe. Because as long as you're thinking about you, you cannot think about God. Everybody wants to be somebody important. Isn't that true? Well, if the creator God of the universe died to pay for my personal sins on the cross and is willing to hear personally my personal prayers to him, and as the Bible has said several places in the New Testament, willing to adopt me into his family, he's made us joint heirs with Christ, he's given us the spirit his spirit to cry, Abba, Father. He has brought us into his family. How could you be more important than that? Amen? You see, these were the battles that our king fought for. He accepted the praise of those that watched him as he rode into the city of Jerusalem. Because he is the great king. Do you remember what he told the Pharisees when they said, tell your disciples to shut up. They don't know what they're saying. And Jesus said, oh, yes, they do. He said, if these would hold their peace, the rocks would cry out. Because I am the great king. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. It's interesting when they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem after Titus destroyed it in 70 A.D. They rebuilt that eastern gate and they sealed it up. And then they put a cemetery out front. And they said, when Messiah comes, he'll have to reshape the landscape and he'll have to remove the cemetery and he'll have to break open the wall and we'll know that he's the Messiah. Well, read the book of Zechariah. All those things are going to happen. We'll get to that in our study of the book of Revelation. But 
He had already been through that gate years before they sealed up the wall and before they planted a cemetery across the road. Look with me to just a few verses here. And we have touched on many, many verses this morning. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under his feet, Under him it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is the great King. This is why Jesus rode that donkey through the eastern gate on the city of Jerusalem. As the king, he was going to fight the real battles against death, hell, and the devil, and he won all three. He is going to provide forgiveness, reconciliation, and a place in his family for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. But as with any great king, you must choose your allegiance. Jesus will not be your king unless you willingly submit to his authority. Study the word mercy. It's what the defeated receives from the victor. We live in a world where they say, well, that's your truth and it works for you, but I have my own. I pity people who believe like that. They've been to those colleges that we've talked about because truth cannot be owned by an individual. Truth cannot be held by only one person because if it belongs to you and to no one else, then it's something you've created and you cannot create truth. Truth is truth because it is. God is truth because he is. You must choose in whom you're going to believe. I choose to believe in this book called the Bible. You say, but the Bible's a difficult book to understand. Well, I don't recommend this, but try to read Buddhist literature and see if it makes any sense. Try try to read the philosophy of mankind and see if it makes any sense. 
We have a lot of people that believe in Nietzsche and believe in all of these great philosophers. The only thing that is great in their philosophy is the parade of human depravity which it produces. Study the Greek mythology if you please. But let me tell you, you might as well go home and buy a cable and turn on the dirty channel because you're going to get more filth studying Greek mythology than you can in any cable TV network there is in existence. Because man's philosophy and man's religion only leads to more depravity. Have you ever wondered how these people who actualize themselves and realize their highest goals all believe in abortion? All believe in total freedom of immorality to engage and destroy other people's lives for their own pervient desires? Because the exaltation of man leads to the debasement of mankind. The exaltation of Christ, the true king, leads to the glorification of mankind and to freedom to love and care one for another. But you cannot be saved unless you choose Jesus to be your king. And then it will be on his terms and not yours. You see, when you choose Jesus to be your king, that doesn't mean you get to choose him to be your king today so you can go to heaven, but you get to decide what job you're going to work and how you're going to spend your money tomorrow. If he's your king, he's in charge of those things too. You see, when the Newburgers got saved, if God had told them they would come to New York City and go through all the things that they've been through this past year, they probably would have said, no, thank you. But they have willingly submitted to his kingship when they got saved. And as his, the king is giving direction, they willingly submit to follow him. Does it make sense to go out and be in 100 and 200 churches and beg for money and ask them to support you to have a salary so you can come back and live in this city and work? I mean, if that makes sense to you, please explain it to me. Uh, but you see, we believe in independent churches. And so you got to visit the independent church to get the independent support. And you get the prayers. And you have to learn how to put up with all kinds of people. Deputation is a wonderful thing going to teach you things that you can't learn any other way. You say, maybe we should all go on deputation. No. If God needed you to learn those things, he'd send you. But they need to learn those things, so we're sending them. Amen? And by the way, many have been there before, and uh, I'll tell you, my wife and I, we, we love deputation. It was one of the greatest times in our life. We got to live in the old bus together and just travel around and visit churches, and, and uh, oh, yes, uh, we had to put up with some pretty uh, incredible people who are doing very unbiblical things. But, you know, you turn the key, and you go to a different church. Amen? You just let the Lord take care of those things. But when Jesus is your king, 
it's no longer your decision to ask what you're supposed to do. It's your decision to obey the king. By the way, that's why you should work the job you work and be a good employee because the king said so. Amen. I mean, this is where it goes in every part of your life. The Bible says a lot of things about every part of your life. All you have to do is obey what the king says. And you'll find the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction from life. You can have all the self-esteem you want. But if you still spend half your life in a psych ward, what have you accomplished? That's where life really is, my friends. And I'm not trying to be rude this morning. Don't feel good about things you ought not feel good about. Submit yourself to the king. And then you'll have a purpose to feel good about your life. You'll have a direction. You'll have everything that you need to live life to be accepted by the king. And all God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we're thankful that you as the creator God of heaven can hear our prayers right here in this auditorium. Lord, we know that there are souls that you are dealing with right now that need to be saved. They need to make that choice to make Jesus their king. There are others here this morning who are saved, but they've kind of forgotten that you're the king. Lord, we pray that today would be a new day of submission to the authority and direction of the king. Lord, we pray for those that are discouraged with what's going on in circumstance in this life that we would realize those things are in the hand of the king and resubmit ourselves in our direction and let you lead us even through those dark and dreary ways. Lord, let us find our purpose in service to the king. And Lord, let us praise and worship you as the king not only of all creation, but of our personal heart and life as well. Lord, we ask that we would leave this place under the authority of our King, that we would truly take the name of Jesus with us as we leave this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation, 291, just as, to 94, I'm sorry, just as I am without one plea. And as we sing these words, if you need to come and spend some time with the Lord in prayer, just making sure that you've submitted to him as your king.